Uh, Congressman, thanks for being here. Uh, great to be here. Thanks for the invitation. I know we, we scrambled to put this together at the last minute, and I should give everybody, this is uh, August 30th, and tomorrow's a big day, and this will run on September 1st, so so much is going to happen in the next 48 hours. I want people to understand the context for this conversation. You were not planning to be back in Washington, D.C., but here you are. Tell us what's going to happen. Well, we've been asking Speaker Pelosi to reconvene Congress. Uh, she has not agreed to do that. So this is the GOP gathering veteran members to try to put pressure on the administration to shift their mission. Actual veterans, not old Republicans, right? Yeah. Correct. Okay. Most of us aren't even that old. But <laughs> um, but yeah, veterans, members of Congress who served in the military. And to put pressure on the administration to change their focus from a date, uh, August 31st, to an end state, which is no Americans left behind. Yeah. Um, in your um, opinion, how long does it take, given, given the bungled mess that we're looking at today, how long does it take to get the rest of the Americans out? Yeah, it's hard to say, but it is going to take longer. Right now, the State Department knows of Americans who are in currently safe locations, uh, but they've been delaying clearance for them to leave. Known American citizens, blue passport holders, and some credentialed Afghans who were helpful to our own State Department who they are not giving clearance to leave. Uh, and this isn't because of a tactical threat that anyone on the ground can discern. It's because of diplomatic bureaucracy. Why? Why would they do that? It's a very good question. I've been asking all weekend. And frankly, every, every moment of delay increases the risk, the tactical risk to these folks. And look, tactical risk, of course, you got to delay till the right time. But you should never be delayed for diplomatic risk. Uh, and especially when you're evacuating a country like this in Afghanistan, but everything else about this. Look, if there was a worse way to do it, I think the State, State Department has probably proposed it. Hopefully they haven't taken all the bad suggestions. But at this point, uh, if you were planning to have a bad exit, it would, it would be hard to execute it more poorly than this. Okay, I want to I get deep into how we got in this situation. Um, but for People that don't know you yet, um, you're new to this show, and, and we met at Freedom Fest about a month ago or something like that, and we were on a panel with Senator Mike Lee, and we talked about some of these subjects, but uh, you are from which district in Ohio? So Ohio's 8th District, that's uh, Southwest Ohio, between Cincinnati and Dayton. And you took uh, John Boehner's old seat, right? Yeah, Speaker Boehner was my predecessor. Okay. Well, it's, it's an upgrade as far as I can tell, but we won't get into that. Um, what, uh, you, one, of, one of the things, and, and I know you're the chairman of the Sound Money Caucus, and you've focused a lot on cryptocurrency and making sure that the government doesn't screw all that up. And if we have time, I want to get into that stuff. But um, you have been an active voice since you got to Congress for getting out of Afghanistan for stopping the mass surveillance of Americans, um, for repealing the 2002 AUMF, if, if I'm characterizing that correctly. So you, you've been a strong voice on, on issues uh, related to getting us out of these endless wars. Is that a fair thing to say? Yeah, 100% accurate. So um, as, as a former, uh, let's talk about this. I don't think we've mentioned this yet. You're a former Army, Army Ranger. Right. Talk, I, talk about your military service. Yeah, so I served in Ranger Regiment as an officer. I was a lieutenant. I was a company XO for the headquarters company of 75th Ranger Regiment. 
So this was in the 90s, 97 to 99. And, you know, while I was there, that's when Al-Qaeda conducted their first attack. They blew up our embassies in Kenya and Tanzania. And at that time, we were very convinced that we would be leaving shortly to go deal with that. Uh, unfortunately, the Clinton administration chose a different path, and we didn't uh, target al-Qaeda right away. And, uh, and, you know, who knows how history would have turned out if we did. But I began my service. I graduated from high school in 1988 and enlisted in the Army, got sent over to Germany. Uh, and when I first got there, the wall was up. I got to be there while the Berlin Wall fell, and we got to see people literally experiencing their first hours of freedom. That was an amazing experience. And from that, had the chance to go to the United States Military Academy. And I always say, look, if, if my personal biography ended there, you would say, God bless America, because that's an amazing story. Most countries, if you're not from the right background or anything else, you're not going to become part of the officer corps. So went to West Point, did well there, graduated, went back into the infantry, served, as you mentioned, in the Ranger Regiment, served in the 101st Airborne Division, and also in the Old Guard uh, as an officer. And then I got out of the Army in 2000. Uh, started growing uh, a small group of manufacturing companies, and that's what I was doing when Speaker Boehner resigned. Yeah. Um, why did you want to get involved in politics? Uh, two reasons, ultimately. I mean, frankly, when Boehner resigned, I wasn't planning to run for office. Uh, about two months after that, someone stopped in my office really to raise money for another cause and asked who I was going to back as a donor uh, in the congressional race. And I was like, well, you're the political people. Who's everyone going to get behind and they cracked a joke, or the person cracked a joke and said, well, you know, it'd be great if there was an Army Ranger business guy in the race. Yeah. And we laughed because it was kind of crazy. And I went home and told my wife. I thought she would laugh. And she said, well, what would you tell him? I said, we laughed because it's crazy. And she said, no, it's not. You would be great at that. So that's ultimately how I got into the race. And when I started thinking, well, should I do it or shouldn't I do it? I mean, at least my wife was for it. But still, should I do it or shouldn't I? Two things that really weighed heavily. And one of them was, look, the United States has not had a clear foreign policy since the end of the Cold War. Uh, that's a long time. I mean, 30 plus years of no clear mission. And you could say, yeah, there's a clear mission. We've been in the war on terror. But the fact that this mission has been so disjointed in Afghanistan highlights that the focus hasn't really been you know, crisp. It hasn't been a it's been a series of one year missions in Afghanistan that hasn't really been well coordinated. And, and then the other big thing was just the threat to capitalism. When I was running my business, which at the time had 200-plus employees in Western Ohio, manufacturing company, I was looking at what we were up against in terms of trade, but in terms of bank regulation, just things that because of the way that global regulators were applying bank rules post-Dodd-Frank, post-Basel Accords, uh, that are trickling down and affecting me as I wanted to try to grow my business. And I felt like if there's a chance to go there and make a difference on that, that'd be great. And the last thing is just bankrupting our country, you know, part of the Sound Money Caucus. It, it's actually growing the wealth gap the way that this money's uh, being printed, and it's deemed compassionate to keep printing more money. But the reality is it's making the wealth gap worse, and people are looking in the wrong places. Uh, if you want to defend freedom, you have to defend sound money. Yeah. Well, let's go there for just a second. When you decided to run, could you have imagined uh, we're six eight trillion in in the last 18 months or so I can't even remember the number and maybe it doesn't matter anymore because it's so big but all of that is being monetized with with the, the Federal Reserve what are the consequences of that like it just seems insane well it is insane I mean and it, and it was fairly early on when I was first running I mean you know say early on I mean it was half the time right of realizing hey we didn't even have to be constrained by the amount of money we can borrow 
you know, in, in the 90s, America felt constrained by spending what you could tax. If you could raise the taxes, then you could spend it. And that's how they convinced George H.W. Bush to break his no new taxes pledge. Um, and because he believed that he should spend more money. So he felt morally obligated to raise the taxes to pay for it. And he broke his own pledge, uh, which was consequential, right? But then not long after that, they were constrained only by the, the amount you could borrow. Dick Cheney, I think in 04, said wrongly that Reagan proved deficits don't matter. Well, he didn't prove that at all. He proved that you could take out some debt, um, but you shouldn't do it going forward in a permanent basis. Uh, just like in World War II, uh, the United States borrowed money in order to win a war, and then we paid it down. Reagan was making the case we should borrow money to win the Cold War, and we did. Um, but what we didn't do after the Cold War is scale down the spending and refocus on America. Uh, and what, uh, what, what Eisenhower led was a focus on America. He built America's infrastructure. He scaled down some of our military commitments and obligations and worked towards balancing the budget. Uh, so, you know, that, that was the focus. On the contrary, in 0809, they started quantitative easing, the idea that, hey, we don't even need a lender here. And that's what's been going on. The debt's growing, but nobody's really lending us the money. And when that's happening, yes, there's monetary inflation. The money supply's growing. But where it shows up uh, is asset price inflation. So you see crazy things like the stock market being valued at its highest levels at a time when the fundamentals in the Main Street economy aren't working that way. So the average worker is seeing their wages more stagnant, even if they are going up, than the valuation of these portfolios. And even if it helps them, it's future consumption in a 401k versus the wealthiest of the wealthy uh, have benefited the most out of this. It grows the wealth gap. And frankly, people who know this and understand it steer uh, these folks to, to look in the wrong place. Like, oh, we should just raise taxes on people. Uh, and we should redistribute wealth and we should spend more government money which actually feeds the system and grows the wealth gap even more. Yeah, well said. And it, one, one of the things that is um, seldom talked about is, is that have and have not dynamic that is created when we monkey with the money supply because the, the wealthy and well-positioned are the ones that, that capitalize that um, and it's literally stealing out of, of working people's wallets. Yeah, absolutely. And maybe worst of all, retirees, because they can't really adjust to uh, rising prices at the same level that workers do. You know, they're on fixed incomes. Uh, they can do very little about the cost of living going up like it is. So let's talk, let's talk about uh, government failure on a grand scale. And I'm, I'm trying to, to, to figure this out. And we've talked about this on the show before. And, and we did not talk about it at Freedom Fest because we weren't necessarily anticipating um, either that Joe Biden would move forward with his promise or that he would bungle it this colossally. Um, do you think that this is a dumb question? Do you think this could have done better? But I'm, I'm wondering specifically, um, would Trump have done a better job? This is speculation because we'll never know. But would Trump have done a better job if we had stuck to the original May 1st timeline that he negotiated? Well, I think Trump no matter what happened along the way, I don't think anyone believes that Donald Trump would accept the current situation where Taliban is actually dictating the terms of our departure, or at least is perceived as dictating those terms. I don't think anyone who knows anything about Donald Trump believes he would accept that condition. And Joe Biden seems to be great with it. Uh, so if, let's go back to 
Look, I've favored ending the war in Afghanistan for a really long time, but under no circumstances have I favored ending a war in a condition where Americans who want to be evacuated are left behind. And for President Biden to know that and willfully leave and for anyone else to to accommodate that, that that's just morally offensive. I mean, it's it's literally inconceivable to me that the United States of America would knowingly for diplomatic purposes with the Taliban, not for tactical necessity, leave behind American citizens. Is it why? Why couldn't we have done a better job at this? It seems like we've been in this for 20 years and I, I don't. I don't know the answer to this. Is it, is it gross incompetence? Was it sort of purposeful foot dragging? But it strikes me that um, knowing that there are these deadlines, and, and you know, Joe Biden himself was, was talking about getting out of Afghanistan going back to 2014, surely there was an exit strategy that was developed that would rationally get American, Americans, American soldiers, and our allies out. All of this would have been documented and planned is, that, is it naive for me to think that you could have rationally planned an exit strategy? No, it's not naive to think that you could have, but it, it's not to say that there, there was a good plan. Frankly, uh, we could have had a great plan, and if you had a great plan, you would never leave in the middle of fighting season. The weather in Afghanistan says, you know, hey, you're better off, especially with the technological advantages the United States has, to evacuate at a time when ground fighting is very difficult. So uh, that, that, first and foremost, would have been outside of peak season. Right now we're in the middle of peak when, fighting season When would season that have been? Well, over the winter months. Okay. I mean, winter in Afghanistan's you know, a, a difficult winter. And the Taliban's known to kind of hunker down, and that's where you'll see less, uh, less ground taken, more, you know, more uh, people hunkered down and just riding through the winter months. And the United States could have done much better. And we've known for a long time there was a commitment to leave. Um, they really pushed back against Donald Trump his whole presidency. And when I say they, look, the people that make rank and make promotion, frankly, even in Congress, the people that are on the committees of jurisdiction are, you know, whether they're overtly neoconservatives, they're essentially people that believe in these kind of endless wars. They've always advised against them. They always downplay the intelligence that says you could do it differently. And to Donald, Donald Trump's credit, uh, when there was a uh, fight against ISIS. He came into a, a failure post-Iraq uh, when the Obama administration left Iraq. They left that in a vacuum. They didn't really leave in a very orderly way from Iraq either. And so what emerged was ISIS, a true caliphate for a while that occupied a massive amount of land. And under the Trump administration, they control zero land anymore. So how did that happen? Well, the neocons wanted to send armored brigades and occupy the same supply routes to drive down the same roads day in and day out so that the troops could be ambushed and have IEDs uh, implanted and do the same foolish things that they did in Afghanistan for nearly 20 years and they did in Iraq for a long time. So thankfully, Donald Trump said, no, there's a smarter way to do this. And it worked. And I think that's been available to us really since at least 04, at least 04, at least since, uh, you know, Saddam Hussein was killed. Uh, but I think even then there was a smarter way before that. So that's how long I think this war has been foolishly waged. Do you think the, the neoconservatives in Congress, and you've, you've called out Liz Cheney specifically, and the amendment that she pushed in 2020 that would uh, basically require a lot of bureaucratic paperwork uh, before you would start withdrawing troops, 
if am I characterizing that? Correctly? Yeah, it was meant to be a delaying tactic by by the people that offered it, and frankly, it passed broadly. It got incorporated, and in, but this is this is why uh, we've stayed there. I mean, it's against sound judgment, but it's convinced a lot of people. Oh, we have to delay. I mean, another part of this was to block the Trump administration from pulling troops out of Germany out of Germany, right? We were going to go way down to only 25,000 Americans stationed in Germany. Uh, and, and so that's how long some of these folks want the commitment to be whenever America puts a troop presence in place. They were obstructionists at every turn for Donald Trump. But if they thought that Joe Biden's idea was bad, where were the obstructionists? Uh, where was the chance to block this? And really, you know, when I when I went into a classified briefing recently, I had already felt like, look, Joe Biden has to go. He should resign. But as I went in, yes, I believe that even more emphatically. Uh, but I also think that the secretary of state, secretary of defense and chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff need fired. And, that, you know, the, the, the question is, uh, with with all of the neoconservatives in Congress and, and the media, frankly, seems quite complicit on this because they, they seem to sort of echo that uh, we, we can never leave we always need to be at war kind of mentality. Is it possible that uh, military brass just didn't take it that seriously? Because, you know, we've been talking about getting out of Afghanistan forever. Were they, were they either said, oh, they're not going to do it because they never do it, or were they even dragging their feet because they didn't want to do it? Well, we needed a good investigation on that. What's clear is they weren't well prepared for what unfolded. And... Um, when you look at the logic, I mean, you don't have to have served in uniform at all to get the logic of first we take the military out, then we pull the civilians out. No, that would never make sense. First, you get the civilians out, then you pull the military out. So the idea that there wasn't uh, a, a big and public fight over that uh, is hard to understand. And yeah. I think it's hard for anyone in uniform to understand. Now, look, people who go over, the people wearing the uniform, wearing the boots on the ground, risking their lives, and frankly, just recently, 13 died. Um, they have not failed us. They've borne the burden of this battle, uh, both physically and emotionally and in every other way. Their families have. Uh, this failure is right here in this city, in Washington, D.C. It's over at the Pentagon. It's at the State Department. And frankly, it's in the halls of Congress. Yes, Joe Biden owns the, the failure in this withdrawal, but Congress has accommodated this lack of clarity for 20 years. Yeah, I've... I've noticed, and I've talked about this on the show as well, that um, veterans in particular seem um, eager to end endless wars because they and the people that are serving now pay the price for for bad strategies and, and frankly, a, a bad mission. Um, I don't know where you were on Afghanistan before we invaded, but clearly there was a radical mission creep from 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 getting terrorists to building democracy, to um, frankly, just rebuilding their entire economy. Um, and it all collapsed like a house of cards. How, how does that make veterans feel? How does it make people feel that, that, that served and, and lost in that battle? Well, I think anyone just like me who served in our, our, our nation's military would agree that there is a time for war. And if there's going to be a time for war, there's a time for warriors. Warriors are prepared for moments like after 9-11. Uh, when, of course, we should have gone to Afghanistan. It, there is no more just war in my lifetime than going to Afghanistan after 9-11 and finding those people who caused uh, horrible evil to America. And 
rendering justice and frankly, making sure that no one else was going to pose the same threat. There's no sanctuary. We can give no sanctuary to terrorists who plan to do harm to America or frankly, to our allies. We, we, cannot, we cannot tolerate that. But the mission, as you highlighted, creeped from that. Now, how did, how did, how did we do it differently? In ISIS, we didn't try to rebuild, uh, we didn't try, try to rebuild Western Iraq or rebuild Syria. There were people that really pushed for regime change in Syria. I'm not saying the, the people leading Syria right now are great, just people. I'm just saying it's not America's job to change that government. And were we to do the same, we would have the same problem that we're experiencing now in Afghanistan that we experienced in Iraq, is the people want their own leaders, or if they don't get the leaders they choose, they certainly get the leaders that the power structures in those regions get. They, they rarely get the leaders that the United States of America chooses unless we're willing to spend dollars and apply force as an occupying power. That does not advance the United States' interest. And when you look at the failure right now, there is no place that this secure, national security team could go and have the confidence of the American people that they are truly going to advance America's national security interests. So I, I don't know if you've seen this, uh, this graphic that's been floating around. It was republished in fee.org um, showing all of the, the weapons and vehicles and military gear that was left behind and it's 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 quite insane to think about how well armed the Taliban will be moving forward. It, again, I like why would we ever do that? I mean, I, I realize it's probably hard to get all that stuff out at the last minute, but I guess it gets to the question of you know we're building this this Afghan military force that that really turned out to be a house of cards. Um, were we doing that to satisfy political ends or did the people doing it actually know that this thing wasn't working? Well, it seems that they didn't know that it wasn't working, that they believe, just go back to the early July. I mean, Joe Biden with a straight face said he believed that this was going to work. He believed they had a 300,000 person strong army uh, that was prepared to defend Afghanistan. I think everybody recognized there was some risk that the Taliban would defeat the, um, the Afghan army. But the idea that they would do it really without a fight so swiftly caught virtually everyone off guard. Now, there was, I think, re references to the possibility that that would happen, but everyone downplayed it. They saw in a lot of ways what they wanted to see. And I think that's the fallacy of the neoliberals that, oh, everyone wants to be just like America. And if we give them money and weapons. They'll just create America. And let's think about how America was created. France didn't come fight our war for us. They gave us some resources uh, and Americans fought for America. And that's why America flourished. And frankly, the only hope that America has to continue to flourish is if Americans fight for America. Uh, and, and it's a republic if you can keep it. Who keeps it? Well, we do. We the people do. And that's what we have to do uh, in order to keep this country, the land of the free, the home of the brave, the greatest nation to ever exist. So what I, uh, we always quote Frederick Hayek on, on this show, and, and I'm thinking about the knowledge problem and, and the, the idea that our intelligence would be so arrogant to think that you could sort of redesign um, Afghan society, Afghan traditions, uh, the incentives of soldiers to, to fight for their own country from the outside, from the top down. 
and and it looks to me, and I'm 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 not a foreign policy expert, but it looks to me like um, the reason the Taliban won without a fight is a lot of these soldiers just switched teams, saying, "Okay, America's leaving. I'm going to join those guys." Um, um, surely that was something we could have anticipated. There, there's surely a tradition here that that we would have known about had we not been so arrogant to think that that we can we can just redesign this. It's kind of a form of of socialism when you think about it. Just trying to redesign someone else's society, parachuting in and, and doing it from the top down. Um, there's, there's probably a lesson about nation building in there somewhere. There's certainly a lesson about nation building, and lots of countries have, tri- have failed to learn it uh, and failed to learn it in Afghanistan. When you think about it, the same people, many of the same people who want to, quote, fundamentally remake America, thought they could fundamentally remake Afghanistan or fundamentally remake uh, Iraq. But um, in in their efforts, it's the same fallacy. But this time it'll be different, yeah. just like socialism. So to the point, you know, let's understand the root issue. And the root issue was this was not what the average person in Afghanistan wanted. And even after 20 years of care and nurturing and trillion-plus dollars, not to mention the blood uh, sacrificed by Americans and, frankly, lost by many of their countrymen, it's just always hard to build a country while the people from that country are fleeing the country. Now, there were people who wanted to stay, uh, but to your point, what happened to them? I think we'll probably see a civil war uh, in, in Afghanistan for a while, and the, the Taliban may seem fairly moderate compared to some of the radicals that are in that country. Uh, but the United States should not uh, get in the way in that civil war. I think what we should do is make sure that if they're going to fight a civil war, they focus on each other and who controls Afghanistan, And our interest is making sure that they don't pose a harm to the United States of America or our interests. Our interest is not in how they govern themselves. So your your colleagues um, in Congress, veterans, I assume you have a diversity of opinion on on this question. Is the lesson of Afghanistan, we should never, ever try to do this nation building again and put American lives and so much American treasure on the block, or is the lesson, wow, this was such a mess, we, we probably should have never left? Because that's the argument we're about to have. Yeah, we're, we're going to certainly have that argument. I think probably the common denominator right now is the lesson is um, if you're going to leave, you have to have a good plan, and then you have to execute it. Um, you know, I think people would agree that, that uh, a decision could have been made to leave, and it could have been executed much more effectively than this, even the people that say we should have stayed. And on the other side, look, we were staying there with a minimal force of 2,500. That endured for a while under Donald Trump. It was scaled down. Was that sustainable? And I think the Trump administration felt like in their dialogue with the Afghan government and with the the Taliban that that maybe that isn't a, a sustainable, viable path. So that's where the dialogue left and the administration changed over. Uh, but as I've said the whole time, with, regardless of the administration, uh, we didn't negotiate our way into Afghanistan, and we were certainly under no obligation to negotiate our way out. That remains today. The idea that we need to leave on a date, a uh, date specific, is crazy. We should be leaving on our terms, and that must mean inherently that we only leave when there are no Americans left behind. So you've, you've been a, I'm, I'm going to pivot to the, the rest of your foreign policy agenda, because I, I think um, whether we like it or not, this changes the conversation and the argument about a whole 
host of issues. And I'm thinking specifically of uh, the fact that, that apparently one of the things that we did in Afghanistan was, was collect the biometric data of not just our, um, it was supposed to be for terrorists as I understand, and then it became basically a database for everyone that was helping us. And now the Taliban has control of that database. Is there a teachable moment here for uh, those of us like both you and I that have been arguing against the United States um, using mass surveillance, um, you know, talk about mission creep. We were supposedly were going after bad guys, and now those tools are available and, and being abused, and God knows it, where this goes in the United States. Yeah, I mean, I think the founders got it right. You know, the, the men who lead a country, mankind leading uh, other parts of mankind, are fallible people too. Uh, and so the best system of checks and balances that can be conceived is is to separate the powers and to have a government that does not grant rights, but a government whose just cause is to defend those rights. And we've seen incredible infringement of those rights, and we've seen scant uh, protection of it. I mean, good governments defend freedom, and we see bad governments ready and willing to not just deny freedom, but to equip others to do the same. Uh, on their behalf. Uh, and that's what we're seeing in the United States of America. You know, could could we use this biometric data uh, for great good? I mean, absolutely, and have, you know, and that's how you identify uh, people and give identity to them, and you know, hey, this person is, uh, is a known terrorist. And a known safe person can be used for good, but you have to safeguard that data. And I think that goes to the structure of how we safeguard data. Will we somehow decide to eliminate all databases? Well, I hope not, but will we say there has to be a smarter way uh, to secure those databases and collect the data uh, and segregate personally identifiable information from other attributes? I think this is part of why I'm so passionate about blockchain, not just uh, cryptocurrency and certainly not just Bitcoin. Yes, absolutely, big enthusiast for Bitcoin and some crypto assets. But the blockchain architecture that Bitcoin made famous is just a much more secure way to structure data uh, and, and if we had some of those kinds of structures in place on this data with truly private keys, we could have um, de-risked this situation a, a lot more. And then, um, you know, what are the vulnerabilities for that data uh, going forward? And that's, that's a fair debate about what could be done in, uh, in, in our own country and certainly around the world. So let's, uh, let's talk about uh, uh, crypto for a second. Uh, the and, and I don't know much about this. I know that, that what was buried in this last, I guess it was in the infrastructure bill, um, there's, there's language that, that is a real threat to cryptocurrency. Do you understand that? And can you tell us what happened? Yeah, so what happened is Treasury, the U.S. Department of Treasury has um, not been happy about the growth of, of, of digital assets, you know, crypto in particular. Uh, and... They've been concerned that... Because, because they don't control it. Yeah, frankly, because they don't control it. And they've been concerned that um, the, the big uses are to evade taxes, to launder money, or fund illicit, acti illicit activity, right? So uh, of, of all sorts of types. So that's the gross mischaracterization of this. But they'll tell you in the modeling, well, they believe that the scale of this is $28 billion. 
So they put a score on this to say, hey, we think if you just get all this information, you'll collect $28 billion. Well, A, I believe that their assumptions are wrong. And B, um, if they do the things that the, this bill proposes, no matter what their model, the real number would be, their model would be wrong because people will move the activity. I mean, one of the best examples of this is a company, FTX, uh, that is an exchange. They trade 15 to $20 billion of crypto assets a day, uh, very large exchange. But for the United States, they have a separate product offering. It's scaled down because the United States has very heavy uh, privacy infringements, very uh, onerous know-your-customer rules, and the whole architecture of, of, of true distributed ledger uh, prevents some of that collection. I mean, uh, uh, transactions, you're assumed that you don't trust the person. It's a whole different way to establish trust, and I don't think Treasury truly understands that. Yeah. Uh, and so as this debate came along, they were literally going to kill everything but proof of work. So that would preserve Bitcoin, but kill uh, proof of stake, which is Ethereum, or proof of history, which is Solana. In spite of this, most crypto assets have gone up in value since that time. Uh, and people that are hodlers or hold on for dear lifers, people that hold the asset, maybe different kind of mindset than the people that trade the asset, have almost none have liquidated. I mean, 70% of the holders of Bitcoin have not moved their position. So there's there's now like it's now law that that there's more onerous uh, reporting regulations essentially. It's not yet law. Um, it's in the Senate's passed uh, infrastructure bill. The House has not passed that language, um, but the Treasury is lobbying for it. So right now, Sen Senator Cynthia Lummis and uh, Patrick Toomey, Senator Toomey from um, uh, Pennsylvania, are trying to get an amendment uh, to this bill that would make it less onerous, less bad. Uh, we tried to do the same in the House. Uh, but we weren't even allowed to offer amendments. Speaker Pelosi didn't really give us a vote on the infrastructure bill, um, really because a group of moderate Democrats said if we don't get a vote, a clean vote on the infrastructure bill, then we're not going to vote for this budget. So she did a compromise uh, that just put a rule in place to have a debate about this and basically sent it back to the Senate. So the negotiations are still underway in the Senate on what that language is going to contain, but frankly, on what all this spending, $1.2 trillion on infrastructure bill, which does have some infrastructure in it, about 9%, uh, and then another $3.5 trillion of other spending. So 4.7 of spending uh, being debated right now and not yet finalized in the Senate. So the, the Loomis language is still possibly something we could get done? Still possible. Uh, we're, we're rooting for it, and frankly, even better. But, um, but you're up against Treasury, and Treasury is largely um, proceeding under the assumption that, that um, they want to kill the ability to have privacy. And one of the things that they tried to do at the end of the Trump administration was ban private wallets, private digital wallets. Um, they called them self-hosted wallets, but kind of the whole point of these wallets is they're cold storage or air-gapped. They're not actively connected to the Internet or hosted, so I don't know why they called them self-hosted, but they're really... Um, some level of privacy so that it stays permissionless. So this is the real promise of blockchain, the idea that you and I could digitally move money um, because we agreed on something right here and now. We wouldn't need a third party. Now, you can do that with apps like PayPal or Venmo or Zelle or whatever, um, but you're really using a third party. Treasury likes the third party, and that goes back to the third party doctrine, yeah. where once you've shared it with someone else, then the government feels that they can claim 
access to that because you no longer have a real right to privacy. So this is a, a shameless violation, and it's an effort to structure the whole system so that there is no privacy and the federal government can collect whatever they want about whomever they like. Yeah. I, you, you said that maybe Treasury didn't fully understand the nature of a blockchain ledger, but I think they probably do, which is why they're trying to destroy it, because they love middlemen, um, particularly when they're not just a middleman, but sort of maybe the, the puppet master of the whole financial system. And I think um, whenever I get sort of despondent about the, the future of liberty in America, I think about blockchain and technology, and I hope, I hope we hack our way out of it because, I mean, clearly the, this radical expansion of the money supply is unsustainable, the debt's unsustainable, um, the, the creeping of government getting involved in all these aspects of our life seems unsustainable. So I'm, I, I, I think I understand why they're going after it, because I think this is the alternative that, that gives us our freedom back. No, I think that part they understand just fine, uh, but they mischaracterize it. And if they really understood it, I mean, if you were trying to uh, conduct criminal activity or truly illicit activity, why would you put it on a public ledger? I mean, you can follow all the moves every, uh, if you think of it as a wall full of safe deposit boxes or mailboxes, except the keys are private, you can see inside all of them. You could follow all the moves. And that's how like the colonial uh, pipeline ransomware attack, for example, was solved because the hackers got paid in, in crypto and uh, they, followed the, they followed the chain, all the on-chain activity until there was an exit. And they said, you know what, these are the people that did it and they were able to take them down. Uh, so this is the way so many other things have been uh, compromised. And I think everyone should have hope that there is a, a secure way to do this. And what it does is it provides some level of privacy. It doesn't provide an anonymity or secrecy. And that's what they don't want to give up, even if it means hindering America's um, economic prospects. So you think about America. We did great in the agriculture age. We did great with the Industrial Revolution. We led the automotive, aviation, aerospace, computing, Internet age. And now with the fintech revolution, America wants to take a hard pass. Why? So they can keep the warrantless surveillance going on. Uh, we need to put an end to that. Yeah, I've, I've seen the argument that it sounds like you're echoing that the net effect of this legislation, if it becomes law, will be to push um, the crypto industry offshore. And it goes to other countries instead of our own. Yeah, absolutely. And that's why I highlight FTX. They've already done that. Their real headquarters is not the United States of America. It's an American-owned company. Um, but the corporate structure is outside the United States. And frankly, probably the citizenship will move that way over time. The jobs will move that way over time. The innovation is going to move that way over time. It really get, We have a competitive advantage right now in America. So why would we forfeit that? And this is... <laughs> You know, not to draw too close of a parallel, but much like Afghanistan, this is an unforced error. No one's making us make this stupid decision, but people in this government, this Biden administration, uh, seem hell-bent on making this foolish decision. So um, have you been able to engage uh, Democrats on, on first, the crypto issue? Are there, are there people across the aisle that, that are equally concerned about, about the destruction of a potentially vibrant American industry? Yeah, this is not a really a partisan issue at all on crypto. And frankly, the same on, you know, it really breaks along similar lines. So if you think about the Patriot Act, for example, that was the massive expansion of warrantless surveillance on American citizens. At the time it passed, right after 9-11, 
uh, there were only about 60 people that voted against it. Some were Republicans. Uh, most were actually Democrats at that time. Of course, it was a Republican presidency that pushed for the bill. Um, but since then, there are certainly Republicans and Democrats who've opposed the Patriot Act. And I've had allies who are you know, part of the Progressive Caucus, where I'm part of the Freedom Caucus. So I'm on the right side of the Republican Party, and they're on the left side of the Democratic Party, uh, to simplify the, the arguments. Yeah. But we're, we're, we're all for less authoritarian governments. Now, increasingly, uh, on, inside the Democratic Party, um, they've embraced more and more authoritarian uh, ideas like the Democratic Socialists. And so that's crowding out some of the historic civil libertarians uh, on the progressive side of the aisle. And I think that's giving the appearance that somehow this is more Republican than Democratic. It really isn't. There are Republicans who are authoritarians as well. And for those people, they really like the government maintaining all this access, you know, just to keep us safe, kind of like the Patriot Act. Yeah. And, and that's why it doesn't really break on right-left ideology. It really breaks on authoritarian versus libertarian ideology. It does. Like I was hope, hoping that one of the benefits for all of the the chaos and partisan hand wringing about the Trump administration that um, more progressives would would learn the lesson of of federalism and limiting executive power and and not giving those surveillance tools um, to the likes of of Donald Trump, who was their their vision of evil incarnate. But it strikes me that the lesson is, well, we just have to win at any cost so that our guy controls those tools, which um, is naive at best. Yeah, I was uh, similarly disappointed. The only thing I can say is that uh, moral relativism seems to have been abandoned by the left. So they're no longer <laughs> relativists. They did agree there is evil, and they called it all Donald Trump. Yeah. Um, so in, in a way, I guess that was a progress to at least recognize there are moral absolutes. But... Um, but it was very disappointing. And the other thing is, you look at this era of COVID, I thought there would be people on the right and left who said, you know, we can't just have one authoritarian per state who decides everything about all of civil society. And yes, in an emergency, governors in particular have extra powers. Uh, like right now in Louisiana, the governor's dealing with a hurricane, lots of extra powers. You don't want to necessarily convene the legislature to deal with a hurricane evacuation, as an example. But if this was going on a year, year and a half later, you would say, you know, maybe we should convene the legislature. Uh, and I thought by summer, you know, month, two months, three months, maybe four, people would have had it. They would have said, no, on both sides of the aisle, we need to have a voice. Our voice comes from the legislature, not just a single governor. And it was amazing to see how so many people lined up behind this authoritarianism. I think it's a real threat to the future of our country. Yeah, it's, it's a scary dynamic. And and. And we've talked a lot about lockdowns and and all of these authoritarian mandates as well. Um, the the blank check that people give to governors and and uh, Fauci and President Biden, as long as it's an under the the guise of keeping us safe, um, that's that's such a dangerous path. It's always been a dangerous trade-off. Ben Franklin some, Ben Franklin summed it up well. Um, but it does seem to be a kind of human vulnerability. A lot of people really want safety over freedom. And I think the real challenge for us is to convince people that we need more freedom and less government. Yeah, I'm heartbroken that uh, it appears like the citizens in France and the UK are taking to the streets. And I just don't see that kind of thing going on here. But uh, I, I always have faith that, that we'll get our act together because uh, 
there is something about Americans that um, it's built into our system that we want to defend liberty. Yeah, and I think it's been uniquely hard in America. I mean, things I was speaking to a, a member of parliament in the UK and things that we take for granted uh, as given in America just aren't so around the world. Like masking kids somehow was accepted in the United States. They didn't ever go down that path uh, in a uniform way around, around the world. The other thing is like natural immunity, the idea that you had a virus and recovered from it so your immune system produces a natural response to it is accepted around most of the world. And studies are showing increasingly, I think over 15 at this point, that yes, natural immunity not only protects you, but it actually uh, protects you better than the current vaccines. Uh, that, why why that in the was, face of that? Wasn't that the science before 18 months ago? It was. Yeah. It was the science. And if you find something printed on paper, you might still be able to prove it. But if you find it digitally, it may have already been altered. Yeah, yeah, I noticed that. Uh, well, that's a depressing way to stop, but I really appreciate your time, and I know you got to get up there and, and start fighting the fight. So thank you again, Congressman, for joining us. Yeah, thanks for covering it. Really a joy to spend time with you. Cool. Thank you. Yeah, thanks a lot. That was amazing. Where can I get more content just like that? It's a great question. You're clearly a discerning consumer of the best content. Make sure to like the video, subscribe, and click the bell. And if you're consuming podcasts, go to Apple, Stitcher, anywhere you get them. I'm in. Kibbe on Liberty, honest conversations with interesting people.